Uh, as you can see from the slide above you, we're going to start a new series, or I am, on the book of James. And you're going to take it with me, uh, as it turns out, whether you like it or not. Uh, so welcome. Uh, this is what we're doing. Uh, we're going to start looking at the book of James over the coming, well, months and uh, perhaps even years. We'll see. But uh, I'm excited to, uh, to be studying the book of James with you. James uh, is a favorite of many people, many believers. Uh, book of James is their favorite. I won't ask for a show of hands in here, but I'm sure there are some of you who would say that James is a favorite book uh, of the New Testament for you. And I think there's a lot of reasons why, as I was contemplating, why do so many people like James? And I think one of the reasons so many people enjoy James is because of the picturesque language. All the images, the imagery that uh, James uses throughout the book uh, are just great to read and the picture it forms in your mind. Uh, consider some of these statements. The one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Or the rich man is like flowering grass that passes away. Or speaking of sin, lust when it has conceived gives birth to sin. Or if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror and forgets what he looks like. And of course, it talks about the tongue, compares it to the bit in a horse's mouth, or a horse's mouth, a rudder on a ship, or a flame of fire. All this picturesque language in James. And so that makes it an interesting book to read and sticks in our minds. There's also so many memorable passages in James that we've all come to love over the years. How to have joy in trials. Being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The verse, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on one point has become guilty of all. Certainly that is uh, one that we remember, but do we remember that's, that's actually in the book of James. Faith, if it has no works, is dead. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So many verses that are memorable to us are in the book of James. And so it's great to go back through them and to study them in their context. And what are they teaching us? But I think another reason we enjoy the book of James so much, and we may not even be totally conscious of why, but is that it echoes the teaching of Jesus in so many ways. If when we read the book of James, you may hear like, wow, that sounds very familiar in a lot of ways. And there's a reason that it does is because James' teaching finds so much parallel with Christ's teaching, especially the Sermon on the Mount, but in a lot of other places as well. Here's a table that I don't expect you to write down, of course, um, and I'll make slides available on the website if you want this, but this is adapted from a commentary by Dr. Varner, um, the evangelical exegetical commentary, um, but it shows there's so many subjects that the book of James speaks of that Christ spoke about. And we see so many allusions to Jesus' teaching in the book of James. And there's a reason for that, and we'll, we'll look at that this morning, on why he talks about Jesus' teaching so much. Or not so much talk about it, but just echo it. Teaches the same thing that Jesus has taught. So, so many of these, asking you will receive, blessing on those who endure, uh, being doers of the word, and, and more there. So we will see um, that as we study the book of James, and we can look back to Christ's teaching. And some, some, some commentators even call it the fifth gospel. There's so much teaching that echoes Jesus. It can be seen as the fifth gospel. 
But a fourth reason, I think, why James is a favorite is it contains wisdom for living. Some people will refer to it as the Proverbs of the New Testament. There's these short statements packed with wisdom that we see in the book of James. And so it's fun to be able to turn there and very quickly be able to get wisdom from this book. Wisdom in how to respond to trials on where sin comes from, the sin of favoritism. It speaks of true wisdom, relationships between the rich and the poor, wisdom on prayer and the power of prayer. So I think we'll find uh, a lot to enjoy in the book of James, as I'm sure you already have in your own studies over the years. James gives instruction, he gives it very directly. It is right to the point. You don't have to go a long ways to find uh, specific commands given by James. He gives command after command, imperative after imperative for us. There's no way to escape the application in the book of James. Of course, we love all New Testament, but all, the, all books of the Bible and Old Testament. Uh, but the New Testament epistles, typically what you'll see with Paul is he'll talk about truth, about indicatives, theology, the first half of the book, and then he'll get into application. And there's great benefit to that, of course. James doesn't do it that way. James just starts firing right away and shoots at you right away with application. And you can't avoid the application in this book. And James warns you not to. He says, don't be a hearer of the word, but a doer. If you're a hearer only, you're deluding yourself. So in so many ways, uh, James calls us to application, calls us to live it out. There is no room for faith just to be an intellectual exercise. Faith needs to be lived out. And that gets us to what is the theme of the book of James. And the theme is this, it's genuine faith on display. And that's what we'll see. Genuine faith on display. This is what genuine faith looks like. Now, I think we all appreciate things that are genuine, don't we? Not, not something that's an imitation a fake, a knockoff. Uh, for a number of years, as many of you know, we lived in China, my family, as missionaries there. And this may surprise you, maybe you knew this, they have a lot of knockoffs in China. <laughs> there are some imitation things. They're not sold as imitations. They say they're the genuine article, but uh, they are, in fact, knockoffs. They are not real. And some are very easy to spot. And those are the fun ones, you know, that are easy to spot. Calvin Klein, I guess, is a popular brand worldwide, and they like to imitate Calvin Klein, but spell it in such a variety of ways <laughs> that it is just great fun. Every new shirt we saw, it seemed like Calvin Klein was spelled a little differently uh, when people were wearing them. So that was fun. The one thing that I actually purchased that I just thought was funny was there was a pair of boxers for sale that had SpongeBob SquarePants on the boxers, which, okay. The band had Victoria's Secret on it. <laughs> I don't know much about Victoria's Secret. Not, do they sell SpongeBob pan, uh, boxers? I don't know. I, I, I think it may have been a knockoff, possibly. <laughs> possibly, or, or, or something. I'm not sure what to make of that. But there were some strange things we saw for sure. It was fun, but some fakes, they looked real. You couldn't tell just, just by visual observation. Like Beats headphones. 
you could go just about anywhere in Beijing and buy some Beats headphones, usually for about two bucks. Uh, the price alone kind of gave us pause, like, okay, <laughs> are those legit or not? Probably not. Um, certainly, as you know, if you bought any, and I think my son may have bought a couple pair, uh, found out pretty quickly they were not uh, true Beats headphones because they didn't last. But really, wasting a couple bucks on a pair of headphones, uh, buying some imitation like that, or you know, even buying a Calvin Klein shirt that's spelled wrong, it's not a big deal right? But as we talk about genuine faith, that, that's a serious thing. If your faith is imitation, if it is not real, then that's going to be a very serious thing for you. That's going to be a serious thing now in this life and certainly when you stand before God one day. So as James deals with what is genuine faith, and this is what genuine faith looks like, we can't take it as lightly as a misspelled Calvin Klein shirt. We have to take it seriously in our lives. Is my life, does it demonstrate genuine faith? And for all the topics that the book of James includes, his point always goes back to this. This is what genuine faith looks like. This is what it should look like in your life. And he doesn't say it in just general terms, like I'm saying right now, but he gets into specifics. And those are the specifics that we'll look at as we go through the book of James. Now, who is this book for? Well, I say if you're a believer, this book is definitely for you. This book is for every one of you as a believer. As you know, we can often, it's very easy to be conformed to this world. We all live in a fallen world, don't we? We're surrounded by people who don't love the Lord, who don't pursue him every day. We can, like the world, become discouraged by trials. We can place too high of an importance on riches we may show favoritism to other people, speak harmful words to others, and certainly can be full of arrogance at times. James speaks to all of these things. And as a believer, he says that's not consistent with a genuine faith. So we need to listen to the book of James as believers. And certainly he's writing mostly to believers as you see the word brothers or brethren mentioned many times uh, throughout the book. I think 19 times it's mentioned in the book. And usually it's a direct address to the readers. So this book is for you as a believer. As we read these commands, these imperatives, and say, is my life matching up to what genuine faith should look like? But secondly, this book is also for non-believers. You may be coming to commissioned because a friend or relative brought you, and uh, just, or you're just curious to see what it's all about. And if so... Fantastic. We welcome you. Um, you, at this point, don't know Christ, don't follow Christ, but you want to know more, and you've come, great. We want to have you here, and we're thankful that you've come. And the book of James is going to be very helpful to you, because in this book, you'll see, oh, that is what true faith looks like. I've heard believers, and I've heard people say they follow Christ, and yet I see so many different things out there. What does is, what is genuine faith look like? Well, as an unbeliever, you will find that out as we study this book. And even in chapter 4, there's a direct address to those who have not yet followed Christ as well. And that's going to benefit you as an unbeliever. But there's one more group that this is for. And that's for non-believers who think they are Christians. There's a group of those in here too. 
Now, I don't think anyone raised their hand because you're not in this group unless uh, you don't know you're in this group. But there are a number of people at Grace Community Church. There are a number of people at any church who believe that they're a Christian for a variety of reasons. Maybe they've grown up in a church. Maybe their family is part of a church. Maybe they find it interesting and think, well, I'm a Christian then. But there are a number of people who, though they may think they're a Christian, they are not. And James is going to expose that. And you're going to have to do that heart work. We should all be doing that heart work to say, is this speaking of me? Do, am I demonstrating the genuine faith that James talked about? Or am I not? And I certainly don't know what's going on in everyone's heart in here. I don't pretend to. But what is in your heart shows in your life. And that, was, that is what James is going to speak to. What comes out in your life. So I'm looking forward to the book of James. I hope you are too. This is for all of us as we study this together. And today we're going to have the time to look at the first verse. That's all we're going to look at today, but I think it's a great start to see who this author is, first of all. Who is the author of the book of James? Now, in books, in letters written in the first century, they typically started out saying who it was from. So it starts out, James. Now, it makes a lot of sense to start out that way. I, I don't know why, over the years, our letters have always had our signature at the bottom of the letter instead of right at the front. But uh, now we have to flip to the bottom of the letter. But now that we're emails, no one sends letters anymore, you can see the address, who it's from, right away, which, which is kind of handy. It's more like the first century. So you know, is this important or not? So if I see an email that comes and it says, from Glenna Anderson, well, that's an important message. I should look at that right away. This is important. If I see something like, from Brad Clawson, <laughs> safe to ignore that. <laughs> Not important. So having that name up front, I think it's fantastic. And it keeps me from reading emails that are really of no value. <laughs> but uh, thankfully, this tells us right away. James, it starts out. Well, interesting thing is, it doesn't actually say James in the Greek. It's actually Jacob. And that may be shocking. Wait, Jacob? I thought it was James. Well, it's, it's real interesting as you look into history of this and really of little value to us, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> the, the Greek word, uh, the Greek, uh, word is Jacobus, and we have translated James. And the reason is very convoluted. It's from the Greek to early Latin to late Latin to old French to old English. The, the name has morphed over the years so that we see, use James now. Now, and this is not a surprise. I'm not revealing anything that every single commentator knows. But <clears throat> don't be surprised if you uh, see some kind of commentary and it says it's Jacob. We have used the name James uh, for centuries uh, when you're talking about the New Testament individuals with that name, the, the Greek name Jacob. And the Old Testament, when it's Hebrew, we keep it Jacob. New Testament is James. So there you go. There's a little bit of uh, trivia for you on the name of James. But that, only, that doesn't get us very far. Okay, so we know this guy is called Jacobus, but James in the New Testament, which James are we talking about? There is more than one James in the New Testament. So <clears throat> we have four main 
people that we may think of is, is the correct James. And which of these might it be? First, you have James, the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, the other Judas who was a disciple. His name is listed as James. There's also James, the son of Zebedee, brother of John, you know, one of the uh, preeminent disciples. So we know that James pretty well in the New Testament. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. And this sometimes, I remember it was called James the Less or James the Younger. Again, one of the disciples. Um, could he be the author of this? Or there's also a James, the half-brother of Jesus. So here are our options, which James wrote this. Well, first, James, the father of Judas, uh, it can be ruled out pretty quick because there's no indication that he played a role in the church or would write a letter uh, to believers. So we can rule out the first quickly. The second, James, brother of John, son of Zebedee, he died fairly early on in church history. In A.D. 44, he died. And it's, it mentions that in Acts 12, too, that James, the brother of John, was put to death with a sword. Um, so we can see here that this James um, probably died too early to write this book, uh, James, the son of Zebedee. So then we're left with the second, the last two there, James, the son of Alphaeus, sometimes called James the Less, or James, the half-brother of Jesus. Well, there's a few reasons um, James, the son of Alphaeus, becomes not the best candidate. Uh, the first is um, James, the son of Alphaeus, is an apostle. He was one of the apostles, and the book of James, as we, it reads, it does not list James an apostle. We don't see that in James 1.1. And likely he would have called himself an apostle if he was. So that is one indication that it was not James, the son of Alphaeus. Also, in, there's no mention of James, the son of Alphaeus, in the Gospels, except for the list of disciples. So he really had no role uh, that we read of in the Gospels, other than he's listed as one of the twelve. So for someone to have really no mention at all in the Gospels and then become uh, this prominent leader in the early church is, is unlikely. Third, James, Jesus' half-brother, is mentioned in Galatians 1, 18 and 19 as a key figure in the early church. So we see that James, the half-brother of Jesus, his name is mentioned elsewhere, not only in the Gospels, but also in Galatians. And finally, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the testimony of the early church. That is what the church has believed for ages, um, perhaps even with more information than we have. And so we have every reason to believe that is who the author is, is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And so that is who we have writing this book. Now, who is James, the half-brother of Jesus? What do we know about him? And I want to spend most of the rest of our time talking about James, the half-brother of Jesus. First, to understand his past. Who, who was he? Well, the Gospels do mention his name a few times, but it's not flattering. When James, the brother of Jesus, is mentioned, it's not in, a, in good ways. And the reason is this. He did not follow Jesus as the Messiah. He did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. We read that a number of times in Mark 6, verses 3 and 4. The people said, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simeon? 
Are, we not, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Certainly pointing already that he was not honored even in his own household, even by his own family members. Well, in John 7, it's even more explicit in verses 2 to 5. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. And what's going on there in these verses, they're actually mocking him. Oh yeah, you're this great man. You go do all your work somewhere and you, you prove yourself. They weren't believing in him. They had rejected him. James did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. And there is a sense we know in which familiarity breeds contempt. You can be so close to something that you don't see it for what it really is. And I think that can be true for a number of individuals who grew up in Christian families where they have been to church all their life. They have heard these things all the time and you become numb to it. And I think that may have been the case with James. Yeah, he'd been around Jesus all the time. But yeah, that's my brother Jesus. He didn't think much of it and continued to reject Jesus and even at times would mock Jesus. Finally, we read this in Mark 3. It says, And when he came home and the crowd gathered again, to such an extent they could not even eat a meal, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. And here we read in Mark 3, his hometown and those closest with him, they thought he was crazy. They were so close, but they just couldn't accept something that they were so familiar with. And if you're one of those people who grew up in a Christian home, perhaps, and have always just kind of kept it at a distance, because I know that's what I've heard the whole time, but is there something else out there? Take seriously the words of Christ. Take seriously the claims of Christ that said he was God in human flesh. Take seriously the teaching of Christ, because it is easy to just overlook it when you get so close and you don't take it seriously. But, thankfully, James didn't, was not always an unbeliever. There was a change in James' life, and his life radically changed. Of course, he wouldn't be writing one of the books of the New Testament if he stayed an unbeliever, would he? So we expect that there was a change. And we know that there was at the resurrection of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, it speaks of this. As Paul writes to the Corinthian church of the importance of resurrection in, in the whole chapter there of 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of the resurrection. He writes, For I delivered you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, which we know is Peter, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. 
Then he appeared to James. This specially marks out the time when the risen Christ appeared to James. And we have no indication before Jesus died and rose again that James believed and followed Christ. But afterwards, we see this in Acts 1.14. After the ascension of Christ, these with all one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus with his brothers. James became a devoted follower of Christ after he saw the resurrected Lord. And I think for those of us, for those of you who, again, may be so familiar with Christianity, but continue to walk the fence, you got to take seriously the resurrected Christ. For James, he didn't know the resurrected Christ until the resurrection actually happened, right? Well, it has happened for each one of us. It happened 2,000 years ago. And you must do something with the resurrected Christ. Jesus Christ did not stay in the grave but rose again. You got to do something with that. You got to say his body was stolen. You got to say he was never dead. You got to say something about that. And James knew none of those other explanations worked. He knew that Jesus really died and that he really lived again. And so if you are unbelieving as James was, I challenge you, what do you do with Christ's resurrection? What do you do with that historical fact? Because it happened, and it means something. And James was convinced it meant that Jesus is everything he said he was. He was God come in flesh. So now that we understand his past, who he is in his past, let's recognize now his prominence. What happened to James? We see now that he came to faith after Christ's resurrection, well, not only did he come to faith, he became a prominent leader in the early church. And the book of Acts records for us the history of the early church and all that happened there. The first church sprung up in Jerusalem, and we see that before long, James became the leader, what we may call senior pastor, of that church. And we see him mentioned a number of times later in the book of Acts. In Acts 12, we read the account. This is after Peter had been miraculously released from prison. He speaks to the people that he went to meet, and he motioned them to be silent and described to them how the Lord led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. So Peter said, you know what? James and and the other believers, the brethren, they need to hear about this. James was already being recognized. Here's a key figure, a leader in the church. We also see in Acts 15, and at some point, I don't think there's time for us to look at that this morning, but in Acts 15, we read about a conflict, a question that arose in the early church, and that was Gentiles coming to faith. And there were some that were saying, oh, they still need to get circumcised. They still need to become Jewish, and then they can become a Christian as well. And so there arose a conflict. What are we to do? Do they, do they need to be circumcised? What do they need to do in accord to the law? And so when this discussion came up, it was determined that they were going to go down to Jerusalem to get this question solved. And what we have then is the Jerusalem Council, where the leaders of the early church came together to figure out 
what is the right way to go forward? What would God have us to do? And what we see in there, in Acts 15, again, uh, I encourage you to look at that later, is we see Peter making a statement in verses 7 to 11 about his experience in Gentiles coming to the faith. And then Paul and Barnabas made statements about what they had seen. And after this testimony had been made, we read them then in verse 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. He goes on to say what he believes should happen at this point, actually quoting the Old Testament, and that Gentile salvation was prophesied. And then in verse 19 says, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. We see there James is the one who makes this final call that collects all the testimony and makes the statement and makes a judgment at the Jerusalem Council. What we see here is this unbelieving half-brother of Jesus, rejecter of Christ, coming to faith at the resurrection, quickly rose to a leadership position in the early church so that Peter, Paul, Barnabas, other elders, they look to him, say, James, what should be the final decision here? James had a particular position of authority in the early church. And we need to recognize, as we read the book of James, this isn't just some guy in the New Testament. Oh, he's not even an apostle. Who is this guy? This is the guy in the early church. And we get to read what he said. This is the guy who grew up with Jesus. He got to be in the same household with Jesus. Now, certainly, though he didn't believe at the time, I'm sure he later recalled to mind, you know, I, I remember what Jesus did. Now I see it with new eyes. This is the one who writes the book of James that we get to enjoy. And one more verse in recognizing his prominence in Galatians 2. As Paul talks about his ministry, he says, I've been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter to the circumcised. And he says, in recognizing the grace given to me, James and Cephas, or Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Here we see James listed among Peter and John as pillars of the early church. And as you may know in Greek, when a word, when a name is in the head of the list, it is the leader of the group. James, again, is seen as the leader here even with Peter and John. So we need to appreciate, as we read the book of James, this is the early church leader that we get to read from. And then we get to find out what he says, someone who's going to tell us exactly what Christ said and how we should live that out. But what is amazing about knowing who James is, is how he identifies himself in this verse. Look again at verse 1 here. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he has the opportunity to give his credentials, to say, all right, this is James, this is who I am. He could have said, James, uh, later known by the early church as James the Just. He could have said, James the Just, from the womb of Mary, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and the pillar of the early church, I write to you. He doesn't do that, does he? What does he say? James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And as you probably know, the word bondservant there is the translation of the Greek word doulos. And doulos can, perhaps even more accurately, accurately be translated slave. Now, I don't need to go into great detail because you know our pastor has written a book called Slave that goes into this in great detail. But to remind you, the word doulos, a slave, is someone who is legally owned by someone else and whose entire livelihood and purpose is determined by their master. That's what James saw himself as. He is Christ's slave. I am owned by Christ. Everything I do is to please him. My purpose is determined by my master. Now, we shouldn't think of slave as the early America chattel slavery where slaves were terribly mistreated. That's not what the word meant back there, but it is ownership for sure. It is a person being owned by someone else. And James saw his life totally under the control of Christ. And if you were in first service, which I hope you heard Dr. Lawson's message, that is exactly what 2 Corinthians 5.17 is speaking of as well. That we are a new creature in Christ. That everything we are, everything we do is in Christ. And that's the same thing that James says of himself. That he is a slave of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. James, just from the earliest part here, even identifying himself teaches us a lesson. Teaches us a lesson in humility. And what do we mark as important about ourselves? What do we want other people to know about ourselves? Is it, hey, you know, this is my career, this is my profession, this is uh, how much I make, this is how tall I am, I'm American, not Canadian. All important things. <laughs> Those things actually are not important, are they? Who are we in Christ? Is Christ everything to us and James saw that to be true and so he humbly instead of listing credentials that man may look upon he lists his credentials as being a slave of Christ well that's the author so that's point one we have two more points which we're gonna make it through the author second the audience he says to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad and when he speaks of 12 tribes, that's not a unique designation here in James, but we see 12 tribes, it refers to Israel. And it refers, of course, to Jacob, one of the Old Testament patriarchs, and his sons, uh, Jacob's name was later changed to Israel, in fact, but his sons uh, having, uh, being the leaders of 12 tribes of Israel. So when it speaks of to the 12 tribes, it's speaking of to Jews, now, there are some who want to say, well, this is metaphorical and everyone is part of the 12 tribes now as believers. Well, that's not what's in view in James here. In 1 Peter 1, it actually does use it in a more metaphorical way, but not here. He's actually saying this is to Jews who are dispersed abroad. And the word for dispersed there is diaspora, means sown abroad, and it means those who have gone out from the land. And... Jews had been misplaced for centuries. We had the Assyrian invasion, the Babylonian invasion, and even Roman occupation made many Jews go to other countries. But most significantly was the persecution of the early church. Stephen, when he was martyred, we see after that that people spread. In Acts 8.1, it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that is Stephen, to death. 
And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So we see there that there was a scattering. So James is writing then to these Jews that had gone out from Jerusalem. And perhaps we can surmise then that these were part of the church, the fellowship that James was a part of, and he was their pastor, and now they had gone out. And now, out of a love for them, continuing to stay in contact with them, he writes to them to remind them of Jesus' teaching, to remind them of how they are to live out a genuine faith. So that is who he's writing to. Uh, we can consider the time. When was this written? Without getting into details, um, we believe it was written near the, uh, the late 40s, 80s, 40s, 46 to 49. Uh, and the reasons for this, well, number one, James died in AD 62. So it has to be before that, correct? But the Jerusalem Council, which we just spoke of, was in AD 49. And that's when the whole concept of Gentiles and, and how do Gentiles relate to Jewish people as believers. Certain, this book, our book of James, has no mention of that. And certainly if that event had already happened, we'd see at least some mention of that. We'd expect something to be said of Jews and Gentiles and how they relate to one another, as we see in many other of the epistles of the New Testament. Since we don't, we believe it is before the Jerusalem Council at AD 49, and likely in the few years prior to that. Now, recognizing that as the date of the book, that means this is the very first book in the New Testament that was written. The very first one, before any of the epistles of Paul, of John, even before the Gospels were written. James was the first book that was written in the 40s. And we, I think it's interesting to see that when James echoes the teaching of Jesus, he doesn't quote the words of Jesus as if he had a gospel. He remembers the words of Jesus. So there are allusions to Jesus' teaching, not quotes from one of the gospels, because this is coming from what he knew and what he had experienced when he had heard Jesus teach all the time. So what we have in the book of James not only leader of the early church, brother, half-brother of Jesus, but also the very first book that Christians could read. And it was a letter that went to a number of churches. And so it is uh, going to be a joy to look at that together. Well, third point is the address. Greetings. Well, that's pretty easy, isn't it? Not a lot to say about that. He says, hello. It's not one of the longer greetings that we see from Paul, grace and peace to you. It is a very short one that he uses, and that's going to mark James as we study the book. He is shortened to the point, and his address to them, his, his greeting is certainly that. Just a word, greetings, and then he's going to jump in. And so I'm excited to jump in to this book together with you and see what it has to teach us about our faith. As believers, are we living out the faith that, that should mark our lives? For unbelievers, examine your life. For those who may think they're believers, take this to heart. See if you're truly in the faith. What application can we make from this today? Well, first, is your life consistent with the commands of Christ? And do you demonstrate genuine faith? Is that true in your life? Secondly, 
Is your life like James, characterized by humility? Would you introduce yourself? Do you think of yourself first and foremost as a slave of Christ above everything else? Certainly we should. That's our most important qualification that we have. That's the greatest status that you can have is to be in Christ. And hopefully that's where we find our joy and that's where we find our identity as well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great grace and the, the radical transformation you did in the life of James. Here was someone who rejected you, who mocked Christ. Here was someone who had all the opportunity in the world and yet chose not to believe until, until he did, until you did that work of regeneration in his life. And we thank you for that radical work that you did in him and that we can learn now from this book. Father, as we study the book of James and many things it has to teach us, we know it's not just James that wrote this book. We know it's your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you are behind the words of this book. And then as we read this, we don't just hear what this early church leader had to say. We hear what you have to say to us, to our hearts, and that we know Lord, that when you give us your word, it is without error, it is perfect, and it is powerful. And so may we submit ourselves to what we learn in this book and in all that we do in our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.